of course, played a central role in the Titanic conflict whose outcome had so depressed Adolf Hitler. Fascism was discredited as a political creed. Democracy was virtuous and triumphant. Henceforth, middle-aged men at medal fairs would only be interested in the emblems of the victorious Allied forces. Nazi insignia and the badge caps of the Waffen-SS would have no titillating appeal whatsoever. Germany knew it had cocked up in quite a big way. Japan knew it had to totally rethink how it came up with blue-sky ideas like let's go to war with America. But Britain's institutions seem to have been completely vindicated by the outcome of the war. After all, hadn't this experience been the nation's finest hour? The civil service weren't hanging their heads in shame in 1945 and saying, what an utter disaster. How do we let things come to this? The foreign office weren't asking, why did our chaps trust this Hitler fellow for so long? The army weren't asking why it didn't win a single victory until after Russia and America came into the war. The newspapers weren't being asked how come so many of them had supported Hitler in the 1930s. The public schools weren't facing up to their failures and admitting, we are responsible for generations of leaders who have been imbued with a disastrous combination of supreme arrogance and utter ignorance about life in Britain. And so the decades after the war saw Britain being overtaken by countries that had started from an even more desperate position in 1945, but were at least aware of it. The support that had brought victory to Britain in wartime would not be there in peace. Much as they might have wished it, the British motorcycle industry could not rely on the Americans to bomb the Japanese moped factories. The German football team would not have to face 11 Russians attacking them from the other direction. In 1940, Britain had stood alone militarily. Now it had to stand alone economically, and nobody quite appreciated that this was going to be even harder. The history of post-war Britain really starts with an ageing former civil servant sitting down at his desk in 1941, having been instructed to write a very long and boring report. Social insurance and allied services, it said at the top of his note from the Ministry of Labour. Hmm, pondered the academic. Social insurance, social insurance. And then he coloured in all the vowels on the memo and decided to make another cup of tea before he got started. It's just not fair, he mused, staring out of the window of his pokey office in Pimlico. Buffy is over in Crete fighting the German paratroopers. Fred is captain of a cruiser in the North Atlantic. And I'm stuck here trying to think of something interesting to say about the bloody anomalies of the various social insurance schemes. At dinner parties, friends would ask him what he was working on, and then their heads would fall into the soup out of utter boredom. His office staff would pretend to be German spies to get arrested, rather than have to listen to him reporting how seven different government departments currently administered welfare provision. So mind-numbingly boring was his task, that the only solution for this frustrated pen-pusher was to completely ignore his original remit and write something much more exciting instead. Thus it was that the publication of the Beveridge Report in December 1942 utterly transformed the mood in wartime Britain, paving the way for a radical post-war Labour government and establishing the template for the modern welfare state. For Sir William Beveridge had used the opportunity of this dull internal government review to pen a radical proposal for a fairer, more compassionate society.
he set out carefully costed proposals for a national insurance scheme, universal entitlement to old age pensions, a family allowance, and a national health service available to all. The Beverage Report became an immediate bestseller. A special pocket edition was produced for the members of the armed forces. It was translated into seven languages and shared among resistance fighters in occupied Europe. The debate about post-war Britain could begin, and the idealists had their manifesto already set out in detail by this elderly, upper-class revolutionary. On the 5th of July 1945, the British people went to the polls for the first time in a decade. The Labour Party was fighting from a very low base. A mere 154 Labour MPs had been elected in 1935. It had a particularly uncharismatic leader in the quietly spoken Clement Attlee, who was up against the hugely popular war leader Winston Churchill.